Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, we're here, as always, to provide useful information and insights to help uh, communities, nonprofits, and private sector companies all get more, better broadband to where it needs to be in America. Today, we are um, going to take an in-depth look at one of the major statewide broadband infrastructure projects that's funded by the Broadband Stimulus Program. There's also, by the way, we have a live chat that's uh, going on at the uh, Gigabit Nation uh, homepage on the web, and we encourage anyone to stop by there as well if they have some specific questions they want to pose to our guest today. And our guest today is Josh Broder, who is president of Tilson Tech, which is responsible for the management of the main uh, three-ring binder project. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. And uh, we're glad to have you, and I think it's going to be a very uh, good uh, breakdown of things that's going on there and give some people uh, insights for you know, how to tackle other statewide broadband projects. So you've got this big project on your hands. There's a there's a lot of moving parts from from what I've been able to pull together from articles and stuff that you sent me. And so let's jump into the into this and get to the core of some of these things and uh get a better picture of what's what's happening. So let's start with the main um infrastructure. What what are you building there in Maine? Yeah. So I'll give you just a just a quick thumbnail of the of the project and and uh maybe uh, just a quick overview of of the sort of goal of the project. Um, so the project name is the Three Ring Binder, uh, and the project owner is a company called the Main Fiber Company Incorporated, and uh, they've received a grant uh, from the NTIA, which is a sub of Commerce uh, under the BTOP program, the uh, Broadband Technology Opportunity Program. And uh, using this grant money and an additional $7 million in private equity, uh, the uh, main fiber company is building an 1,100-mile dark fiber open access network in Maine uh, that covers really the the footprint of the state. And and as you know, Maine's a a big state, so the the physicality of the network is quite large, uh, as is the capacity. There'll be something like 144 to 288 strands uh, of fiber available on various segments of the network. And the goal of the network uh, is to support carriers. Um, So the main fiber company incorporated is a carrier of carriers and they'll lease dark fiber on an open access, non-discriminatory basis to uh, any carrier that would like to participate and in some cases uh, institutional users. So I'm sure today we'll have a little bit of time to peel back the onion on that, but that's the the project at a high level. Okay. That's interesting. Now, the, on on Friday, uh, at a at the Natoa conference here in California, um, Milo Medin, Medin, I think I'm pronouncing it right, who's the vice president of Google and their main point person for their gigabit project, said that there's going to be some wireless initiatives that will complement the their gigabit efforts, their, their fiber efforts. Um, are there any plans to have a wireless component of this particular project that you're working on? Yeah, that's a great question, Craig. So the the project here, 
um, as envisioned by the main fiber company in and of itself is, is strictly a uh, fiber optic deployment project. Mm-hmm. But we expect that the customers of the main fiber company will deploy uh, various wireless technologies to bridge the uh, last mile. We, we talked a little bit about what the project was, uh, but what I didn't mention is that the primary uh, vision for the project was to be a middle mile fiber optic network, meaning that these are the fiber optic routes that will connect communities. But in order to connect homes and businesses, there still needs to be further last mile development. And, and as you've said, fiber optics uh, are a part of that equation, but wireless technologies are also important. So we already have partnered with several uh, carriers that will be delivering uh, wireless service on the last mile, and we expect several more to come along. And primarily, we'll see that in, in two flavors uh, for most consumers, whether they be residential and business. The first flavor is sort of fixed wireless, uh, as is traditionally done by Internet service providers in rural areas. This is a Imagine a small dish on the top of a, a home or a business going to a, a tower with a broadband uh, connection over that wireless segment. Uh, the other is uh, with 3G and 4G wireless uh, from uh, mobile providers, and that will be obviously available to handset owners, smartphone owners, and uh, you know, air card or, or sort of computer uh, modem owners. So um, we're excited that the middle mile fiber facilities that we're building will be useful for all kinds of carriers um, that will be providing service end users using a variety of last mile technologies. Mm-hmm. Very interesting indeed. I, uh, In fact, I wrote a story oh, a couple of weeks ago about wireless and the need to look at a variety of options because I think wireless people automatically assume cellular wireless when in I think in rural areas and small towns it is the uh, fixed wireless and the type of wireless that's provided by smaller uh, wireless uh, ISPs that tend to be the I don't know carrying the lion's share of the work the, the wireless work in those those types of communities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and and what we've realized, particularly being in a rural state, is that in order to serve different communities and and serve communities that have different needs, a variety uh, of last-mile technologies are needed, and and as we get into difficult terrain, even amongst the wireless classes of technologies, uh, not not every wireless technology is the appropriate fit for every community, so we're finding as people try and overcome foliage and hills and distance and limitations on where they can put towers. We think that both uh, mobile mobile wireless, you know, the sort of tier one carriers who are deploying 3 and 4G are part of the solution, as are these fixed wireless providers. We've even got a a fixed wireless provider that's about to run a pilot project uh, to help public safety uh, workers uh, that are in the field access uh, mobile wireless using some 700 megahertz spectrum and a new ultra-long-distance antenna technology that can overcome some foliage and, and hills. So, again, the pattern to develop on these wireless wireless uh, projects and last-mile projects are really exciting because they're you know as unique as the communities uh, that are that are using them. Mm-hmm. And now, as far as the, the the players, we've talked about the the overall infrastructure goals and so forth. There's your company, there's Maine Fiber Company, uh, I've read the University of Maine has a key role or is intending to have a key role in the project and so forth. Um, what exactly are the actual roles in this part?
part of the project of the various players. And did I get all the major ones, or did I did I miss anybody? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll walk through the major players. It's a, it's a little bit of a cast of characters, as you've alluded to. Um, and, and as you can imagine, a, a large public-private partnership like this takes uh, a lot of stakeholders uh, to pull everything together and pull off a successful project. So I'll start at the beginning. The, the original convener of a, of a group of uh, broadband advocates and private companies in Maine was a university in Maine. And there's a guy there by the name of Jeff Letourneau, who's the executive director of the Maine Research and Education Network. Um, and also runs the university's network. So he brought together a group of providers, mostly private providers, um, who wanted to take a look at what are the shortcomings in Maine in terms of broadband infrastructure and what are some of the challenges that are unique to this market and what are some of the things that we can do to overcome it. And in, in convening that group, the university, I think, uh, helped get the right people in the room. And, and that group, including the university, came up with the idea that you know, middle mile fiber optic was really the missing piece. Um, and then when the uh, federal grant program came along on the back of the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act or ERA, um, this group said, well, maybe this is the right grant um, to fund uh, this middle mile project. So uh, the, the university at that point had been the stakeholder and convener and had provided some of the sort of intellectual capital in thinking about, you know, how do we overcome this problem of middle mile transport in Maine? Um, but in order to successfully apply for the grant, you had to come to the table with some matching funds. Um, there was a company uh, by the name of GWI. GWI is a small CLEC uh, here in Maine that provides uh, voice and data and co-location services. And they actually applied for the grant. So on behalf of the group, uh, in order just to get the grant application in time, they applied. And in the grant application, they said, although we're applying, this won't be a GWI project. This will be a... Uh, a project that ought to be carrier neutral so that every carrier, GWI and all of the other CLECs and all of the cable companies and all of the phone companies and all of the Internet service providers can use uh, to bring down the cost of providing telecom service in Maine and get into some of the areas that are currently inaccessible. So GWI was an original sort of elbow grease provider uh, in bringing the grant money to Maine, but very quickly uh, they stepped aside as the main fiber company, that's the company that owns the grant, was constituted and formed independently from them. Uh, and that's the company that provided the private match, the private equity match, as well as uh, owns the network and administers the network. Um, so Pilsen, my company, is, is providing um, services on a contract basis to the main fiber company to help get the project built, or sort of the get-it-done guys. Um, but the main fiber company is the main player um, that, uh, raise the matching funds that owns the network and will lease the network out to uh, carriers on an open access basis. Wow. <clears throat> okay. So that is fairly uh, fairly complex. Now, at the same time, you were bringing all this uh, this cast of characters together. There was also some uh, political struggles and things that went on with the legislature and so forth that. Uh, captured some of the news back in the in the early days. Um, what was that all about? What what what, you got, what exactly went on, and how did things get resolved there? Sure. So as you can imagine, the federal government just pulling back for a minute and looking at the national picture. The the federal government um, put over seven billion dollars into broadband development, but they did it in local markets. Um, and the the organizations that received those grants, often in the tens of millions of dollars, um, were private companies were state government agencies, where universities, were quasi-independents, where 
public-private partnership. So the local manifestation of this federal money in each local market was really different. Um, as you can imagine, any time the federal government adds billions of dollars into a, into a market where there's already private players, it really had the potential to change the competitive dynamic within a given market. And, uh, you know, certainly Maine was no exception. So in the early days of the project, uh, there was an effort by stakeholders in Maine who already had a had a interest in existing networks and existing facilities and markets, you know, like the incumbent uh, telephone companies and the incumbent cable providers, to kind of figure out, okay, now that we have a, a large stimulus-funded project in Maine on an open access basis, how does the market function? Um, what role does this new company uh, serve? How is that company regulated? How is that company taxed? So there was a, an early effort in the legislature to try and sort of rationalize how this new concept of a new type of public utility, a dark fiber provider, uh, could exist in the market. And at times that conversation was acrimonious. And, and uh, what I'm most pleased about and most proud of is that, you know, despite uh, the various interests of all the different stakeholders involved from consumers represented by the public advocate to existing telecom providers and existing cable companies with market share, uh, to the CLEX and cable companies and small telecom providers that would benefit from the network, uh, everybody was able to come together and eventually come to a solution that everybody could live with. Uh, and the end result was that the main fiber company was allowed to move forward with the project and that they were granted status under the Public Utilities Commission in Maine as a dark fiber provider, which was actually a new class of public utility created uh, specifically for this project. Do you think something like that is hard to, to structure? This is the first I've heard of a category like this, but clearly if people are making the argument that broadband is the new, uh, you know, the latest infrastructure, you know, the latest public works on, on par with um, uh, sewer construction and highway construction and so forth, doesn't it make sense to have such a category? But, but how much effort went into creating that particular category? Well, a lot of effort went in here in, in Maine, and, and part part of the reason why it was so much effort is that it had to happen very quickly. As you know, the these stimulus grants come with um, some pretty tight timelines to execute mm -hmm. the project and get the work done uh, before the money goes away. So uh, as you would expect, the legislative process is not the fastest process. It's not what you'd like to be doing while you're under the gun. So that the pain associated no. with doing it in a hurry may have been inordinate to the to the effort needed just to do it in and of itself. Um, but I do think it's an important distinction um, to have some kind of a core infrastructure provider who's different than a retail service provider. And in Maine, uh, even even since we received our status, the legislature passed a law recently that's uh, asked the Public Utilities Commission to go and look at uh, what does telecom regulation need to look like in Maine moving forward, given that uh, broadband is important and uh, sort of incumbent telephone companies uh, monopolies look different than they did five years ago, ten years ago, even two years ago, um, and sort of looks to rationalize uh, you know, telecom regulation. And in that in that process, a lot of the stakeholders have contemplated a broader category called an infrastructure provider, um, who would provide wholesale service only and not compete in the retail market. So, as I work on projects around the country uh, for different clients, I increasingly see. Uh, a drumbeat of decoupling, uh, you know, infrastructure from retail service or infrastructure from content. And as that happens more and more, I see local markets uh, starting to slowly tune the regulation uh, to allow 
perhaps uh, an idea of having an infrastructure provider who's not a retail player uh, in the telecom market. I think over time that's something that's going to happen in individual markets, but I also think that uh, you know the FCC is taking a hard look at this uh, as they think about how to best institute the national broadband plan and how to think through how they might provide uh, you know stimulus uh, through the Universal Services Fund for broadband expansion. This idea of you know does the telecom regulatory framework you know laid out in 1996 when uh, you know we were really focused on um, you know dial-up internet uh, just as a sort of ancillary service to telecom uh, voice service, um, you know, really doesn't serve today's needs. So I think it's definitely going to become increasingly important to have a, you know, regulatory distinction for a, a wholesale service provider that's not in the retail marketplace. Okay, so just to recap, who's, who is it that created the, the separate structure in the state of Maine? So in, in, Ma- in, Maine, uh, in Maine, the various types of uh, utility providers are outlined in statute by the Maine State Legislature. Okay. But that statute is then uh, is then sort of administered. Rules are created, and it's administered by the uh, State Public Utilities Commission. State Public, um, okay. So, so, so in Maine, the Maine Fiber Company has a right to be a uh, dark fiber provider under statute, statute passed by the legislature, right. people's representatives. But as an executive arm, the Public Utilities Commission uh, has to certify that there's a, a public convenience or need uh, for the main fiber company to be in that status, and then it serves in a regulatory role over the main fiber company to make sure that uh, the company is you know, complying with the rules of the commission and the, and the underlying statute. So it creates the status, and then it also manages the, the status in a, in a sense. Exactly right. So if you could imagine that... Um, you know, in 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 Maine, uh, New Hampshire, and Vermont, the incumbent telephone provider is Fairpoint, and Massachusetts is Verizon. Uh, those companies are regulated by the Public Utilities Commission, or in the case of Massachusetts, the right. uh, Department of Telecom and Cable. Um, the Maine Public Utilities Commission also regulates smaller telecom providers that either uh, offer a different service than the incumbent telecom provider or compete with a telecom provider. So. Um, you know, the competitive local exchange carriers and in Maine, uh, this new class called the dark fiber provider, which the Maine fiber company is. Okay. So you, you're you saying that you see this happening in other communities. Do you see it being driven by each state's uh, public utility commission, or do you see it happening in some other – like if you were to sort of maybe, I don't know, draw or open up the crystal ball there, who's going to lead the charge, do you think, or who might be the natural entity to lead the charge? Well, I, I think that the place where you'll you'll find that this will happen, you'll see sort of the most change around this is in state legislatures. So in most cases, okay. the Public Utilities Commissions uh, in the various states or whatever they happen to be called in the various states are essentially instituting state law uh, enacted by the legislatures. Uh, and in some cases, they also have the responsibility uh, to enforce federal law um, imposed by the FCC with a local jurisdiction. It really varies on a state-by-state basis. But I think what you'll see is that this issue, this issue of how are telecom companies regulated, how do we deal with this new class of providers that are providing core infrastructure without providing retail service, I think you'll find that that will be an issue for state legislatures until and unless uh, there's a federal standard. And the, and the federal standard could come from Congress. Um, I think the 
the SEC has some limitations imposed on it by federal statute on, uh, you know, the kind of rules it can impose upon the states. You know, states have sovereignty in this regard, uh, mm-hmm. except where the federal government has explicitly taken it away. Um, and I, I feel like uh, unless you see activity in Congress to change the law, uh, and, and Congress asks the SEC to take a hard look at this, then primarily state state legislatures will be the driver on how uh, telecom regulation acts on local markets. Now, do you expect the incumbents, like the larger incumbents, to fight this type of legislation, or will they ignore it? Um, because well, I, I, to, I think, date, that's I think they'll certainly be involved. I mean, right. they they have to they have to play a role because you know these these are their backyards and 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 uh, the way that telecom is regulated in their local markets is their lifeblood. Um, but I would say that I I don't necessarily think that incumbents will be a regressive force to prevent this. And in the case in Maine, uh, Fairpoint, the incumbent provider, was an important stakeholder in in the discussion and the negotiation that led to the creation of the class of of utility provider. Um, uh, so I, I think that you'll see manifest differently in each market. I think that uh, large telecom companies have a vested interest in seeing that uh, utility uh, infrastructure providers are well-regulated, both because they'll be customers of those underlying infrastructure providers and, and potentially that those infrastructure providers could enable their competition how to compete with them on their own facilities. So. Um, I think they'll certainly have a seat at the table for that discussion, and I think in some cases it, it may be to their advantage, uh, to everyone's advantage, to see that there's a there's a rational class of regulation around uh, underlying utility providers. Um, I tend to think that 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 amount of regulation will be less, uh, because most telecom regulation is set up to protect the end consumer. And in the case of infrastructure providers, people who are providing long-haul fiber service and that sort of thing, they're not directly interacting with consumers. They're not setting prices for consumers, and that's the place where state legislation tends to live. Um, but I think you will see more states uh, treating uh, sort of wholesale infrastructure providers uh, differently than other telecom providers. Hmm. That is intriguing. I do have a question from uh, one of the one of the listeners who asked if um, the TWI provide matching funds, and if so, what was the the amount of that? I'm sorry, TWI. You mentioned. You oh, mentioned I'm sorry, G, GWI. Yeah. GWI, right, so, right. So, so GWI did not provide matching funds um, for the project. All of the matching funds for the project in Maine were provided uh, by the Maine Fiber Company and a private group of investors. So GWI served as the entity that actually wrote the grant application and survived the due diligence process. But as soon as the grant was awarded, the grant was transferred to this new company, the Maine Fiber Company, and the investors in the Maine Fiber Company, which is not GWI, uh, were required to put up all of the matching funds, which were around $7 million. $7 million. So how much was the total grant or the, or the total project? So the total project is $32 million. So the balance it, of the, okay. the project was paid for by the federal government. It's about $0.80 cents on the dollar. Got it. Okay. So, um, you know, we've talked about, I guess, many of the moving parts so far. But um, what about the various cities and towns that are all over the state? I mean, how do you or did you um, – pull all these folks together and get them on the same page? Because I'm assuming that there has to be some 
general consensus that we're all going to pull these oars in in some same direction, whatever that direction is. Yeah, that, that's um, a great that's a great question. So the Mean Fiber Company's project, the three ring binder, passes through around 100 communities. Um, those communities are some large communities, but are by and large small towns. Uh, and by design, the project was designed to link up uh, many of the rural communities in Maine. Um, we convened an advisory board early in the project um, to bring in stakeholders uh, and ensure that they were tied into the process with, A, how we were spending public money, uh, B, to help determine which community anchor institutions uh, we were going to connect directly to the network, and I can talk a little bit more about uh, that later, um, and also to ensure that we had a conduit for feedback from you know, key stakeholders who mattered in the marketplace. Uh, the state's Office of Information Technology uh, was on the board. Uh, there was a representative from the CLEC community. There was a representative from the ILEC community. Um, there was a representative from industry. There was a representative for consumers from the Public Advocates Office. And one of the uh, representatives that we brought in early on was a representative from an organization called the Maine Municipal Authority. Uh, and, uh, and Maine Municipal was, I'm sorry, the Maine Municipal Association, not authority. And the Maine Municipal Association's role is uh, to represent uh, local governments. And in New England, there's still a sort of form of government called home rule and and the individual municipalities um, in many ways sort of uh, represent the biggest part of government in people's daily lives and the way that you know basic services are delivered. Um, so the Maine Municipal Association helps uh, each of these municipalities think through you know the various you know legal and economic and political issues that you know affect uh, some of these small towns. So by engaging with them early, we had direct access to each of the communities uh, that we were going to be going through. And it gave us a conduit to get information to each of those towns. And, and keep in mind that many of these towns uh, don't have a full-time professional government. They may have a, a volunteer town manager or a part-time town manager and volunteer select people. So just communication with that many towns in, in a rural area is challenging. And it also gave them a conduit uh, to participate in the process uh, through their trade association um, to be able to you know, reach us with a single voice. And that helps a lot, I'm sure, as far as getting uh, getting folks motivated. Did you have much of an educational curve? I mean, when you say broadband to a lot of people, especially people who don't have it per se, I mean, they may have cellular, they may have bad cellular, they may have satellite, they may not fully understand, you know, the wherefores and the powers of broadband. Is that a difficult concept to get people to understand? Yeah, well, education and outreach was... Has Definitely a challenge from the beginning of the project. Um, the federal government, in its BTOP grant program, this is the Broadband Technology and Opportunities Program, uh, this is the Department of Commerce program under which we got our money. They also give grants for uh, broadband adoption in public computing centers and also broadband planning. So the projects like the one we have here in Maine, which is primarily building infrastructure, uh, have sister projects in Maine and in every other state that deal with education and outreach, driving uh, adoption, uh, mapping to see where there is and there isn't broadband, uh, and in some cases uh, doing some last mile projects. So in Maine we have several projects going on. There's one in Washington County by a, a company called Axiom Technologies uh, that's doing a broadband adoption program, and they're actually educating farmers and fishermen on how to get online and how to use computers and how to use various applications that can be useful 
um, for doing federal and state reporting and compliance, mapping, uh, and other things that uh, uh, farmers and fishermen would need to increase the efficiency of their operation and their competitiveness. So um, this issue of um, adoption and education has been an outreach challenge for us that we've been working hard to fill, but the federal government's also provided specific grants to other organizations that have been attacking uh, this very issue in parallel as sister projects. Mm -hmm. So in the end, what are the main objectives for the network, meaning what do you hope to accomplish with it, and how will you and constituents in general in the state know when you've reached these goals? Sure. Uh, well, that's a fair question. Um, I, I guess first and foremost, we want to bring broadband to places that don't have it today. These are the so-called unserved communities. And we know we're hitting unserved communities when we get to an area and there's no utility pole line and we have to place our own poles. Wow. Uh, in, a, in other places, uh, we're helping people who are underserved. They may have some access to broadband, uh, but they may not have good access to broadband. And uh, an, an example of a place like this, we, we recently uh, completed a segment of fiber through several towns uh, up in northern Maine. This is Orient, Cary Plantation, Hodgton, Danforth. And in these communities, they had some areas that were covered by you know, copper DSL service and some areas that really didn't have anything except for dial-up. So in the areas where we brought in our fiber, and remember before I said this is middle mile fiber, not last mile connections for individual users, mm -hmm. we brought fiber into communities that really didn't have any service options, um, not even from the incumbent phone company. And in those communities, when we brought our fiber in, there were small internet service providers that said, well, if you can get me into town, I'll run DSL or wireless or fiber into individual homes and businesses. And handle that last mile connection piece. So we partnered with a company called Pioneer Broadband uh, in those communities in Aroostook County, and, uh, and we provided the middle mile fiber facilities into those towns, and then they extended uh, DSL service or fiber service uh, or wireless service into uh, mostly uh, residences that had, had no access to DSL, had only had uh, dial-up in the past. So our goal is to get the entire network built and to ensure that everybody within our footprint has access to broadband through these last mile providers. Um, and uh, we know we won't hit uh, every home and every business. And at the end of the day, the actual hard work of doing those connections belongs to other organizations. But what we want to do is we want to compress the cost of those organizations getting to town and in places where the facilities just didn't exist and in places where there wasn't even a pole line we want to make sure that those last-mile organizations have access uh, to middle-mile facilities so that they can spend the scarce CapEx dollars that they have on the uh, last-mile projects. Right. We, have a, we, have an, we have another goal that comes with the uh, federal grant that although we're a middle-mile project focused on getting to town, for a certain class of uh, users called community anchor institutions, we're actually providing a last-mile connection. And these community anchor institutions are hospitals, uh, health, other healthcare facilities, government buildings, schools, libraries, public safety facilities, government buildings, community centers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're helping those organizations who couldn't otherwise afford broadband service to get fiber optics directly into their facility. And while we're providing dark fiber only, meaning that 
someone still needs to come along and light that fiber by getting rid of the construction costs of the lateral of the of the line all the way into their facility on the last mile, it makes the economics work for organizations that couldn't have otherwise afforded it. So these are right. organizations that may be a mile from the three-ring binder. Um, today, they only have dial-up, or maybe they have the ESL and they need a very fast connection. We'll run fiber optics into their facility that they're either their existing provider or a different provider can use to provide a really fast connection. So, so we're actually me we're measuring we're measuring that pretty carefully. So far, we've connected 75 of these facilities, and um, you know we hope to have somewhere between 100 and 200 of these facilities connected to our network by the end of the project. And then the so 200 and some odd institutions within the, the community themselves. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I know one complaint that's raised in some places is, well, if the – well, you're not obviously the public that owns this network or a private company, but in the cases where private – I'm sorry, in the cases where public entities own the middle mile component and they are also vis-a-vis -vis the uh, stimulus grant are wiring the institutions – some local carriers complain that this takes away their primary business because if you take the libraries and the hospitals out of the equation, where do the providers go? Is that a right. valid uh, concern or is, well, it, in, is there a in, trade-off in some there somewhere? In, in some places that, that may be a valid complaint and that's certainly, certainly a, a trade-off conversation versus a black and white issue, but we're lucky here in Maine that we've really approached this as a as a dark fiber provider, meaning that never will we compete with a carrier. There always has to be a carrier involved in providing that service. Mm -hmm. So at, at the end of the day, some institutions are sophisticated enough to provide their own service. For example, the University of Maine system in Maine for years has lit its own fiber because they have a very sophisticated IT department that can light uh, those facilities between campuses. Uh, but in the case of, let's say, lighting up a hospital, we recently lit up a hospital uh, up in down East Maine, uh, and that hospital is being serviced by a local service provider who's using our fiber uh, to deliver the service. So in that case, we're not competing with that uh, local service provider. We're providing underlying facilities that make their costs go down. Uh, in certain markets where uh, there are already service providers providing service and these projects are getting built, I guess I, I couldn't speak to the specifics of those instances because they're sort of outside of my personal experience. But I know right. that it, at least when we went through our grant application uh, phase, the NTIA, the National Telecommunication and Information Administration, which is the sub of commerce providing the money, um, put us really through our paces in terms of looking for duplication and trying to make sure that we weren't uh, overbuilding private facilities. In the in the case of our direct connections, when we're providing uh, service to, let's say, a school, a library, or a hospital, one of the reasons we have this advisory board process is to make sure that if that facility already has a fiber connection from a private carrier, that we then take that money and go use it somewhere else. So as we've gone out into the world and started to survey those locations and talk to people on the ground, in, in many cases we found that some of those facilities we had previously thought needed service uh, had carrier relationships and fast internet. And what we've gone and done is we've deployed those funds in areas uh, that are underserved or unserved rather than overbuilding those facilities. So right, our okay. focus has really been on 
using the federal subsidy in places where there really isn't a, a business case um, to do it on a private pay basis. Okay. Um, in terms of managing expectations, uh, expectations across the state, um, how are you how are you doing that? Well, when when we first uh, got the project, I think we communicated the the deadlines around expending the federal money that we were really under the gun to get this finished. We have a two-year substantial completion deadline and a three-year completion deadline uh, from the federal government. So we communicated those dates uh, as as our um, as really our deadlines. And one of the things that we've been lucky here in Maine is that the project's been going really well. We've been able to shave we've been able to shave uh, uh, months off of the construction schedule. Uh, we have a construction vendor, NextGen Telecom Services, which is working really hard and really fast for us out in the field. And because they've been able to save time, uh, we've been able to deliver fiber faster than we anticipated. So um, from an expectation management standpoint, uh, we have the opposite problem that a lot, of, a lot of projects just in the world of big projects may encounter. Uh, we're, we're trying to make sure that people don't get too excited about it being available too early because we're actually exceeding our schedule. Um, so that hasn't been a huge problem for us, luckily. I can I can see where that's not a problem. Now, when you say you, you're ahead of schedule, um, how exactly has that manifested itself? In, in which areas or, or by what measure are you ahead? Sure. Well, there's there's really two uh, there's really two types of construction involved in this project, and I've got I've got some credit to to throw at several organizations for being ahead of schedule. The, fir the first type of construction is make ready construction. That means that on existing utility poles that we want to attach to, the poles themselves have to be made ready for our attachment. That often means that the cables on the poles have to be rearranged. Uh, and in some cases, the poles have to be strengthened. In other cases, they actually have to be replaced with a bigger pole. And in many telecom construction projects, this make-ready construction is the most expensive, most time-consuming part of the project. Um, we've had really good cooperation from the pole owners. Uh, and in name, the pole owners are primarily Fairpoint Communications and a variety of power companies, but primarily Central Maine Power, Maine Public Service, and Bangor Hydro. And those pole owners, as well as some other smaller organizations um, that own poles, have been really cooperative in getting this make-ready construction done in a timely way. Um, and it's exciting for us because traditionally, make-ready has been a major toad in the road for big telecom construction projects. It tends to be very slow and very expensive. I will say it's been fairly expensive, um, but it has been uh, also quick. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in addition to the to the pole owners, other people who are attached to those poles, oftentimes the cable company, and in Maine the dominant cable company is Time Warner Cable, they mm -hmm. also have to move their facilities or rearrange their facilities to make room for us, and they've been also very accommodating. So um, one of the reasons why we're ahead of schedule on construction is that we've been able to start construction sooner than we thought we would in many areas. Um, and then on the construction itself, um, the construction's been really clicking along. I, I think I called out before next-gen uh, telecom services, these are the guys that we hired uh, to actually roll the bucket trucks and, and construct this thing and attach it to the pole, and they've been doing a great job. And we've got a project manager, uh, Amy Hayes, uh, who's uh, a Tilson person, and she's been 
personally project managing the construction flow, and she's been doing a, a great job along with, with her staff. Um, there's another gentleman uh, by the name of Mark Curtis who's a, who's a very strong uh, fiber optic program manager, and he's been out making sure that you know bridge crossings are done on time and uh, uh, all of the bits and pieces that, re that are required to be lined up before the construction crew can hit the start line are, are done on time, and, and he's been doing a great job, too. So it's taken a, a lot of people from a lot of organizations uh, to keep the trains running on time, but we had originally projected that we'd be done by the end of 2012, and we would always communicate that in kind of a hedgy way, like we really hope it's done by then, but now we're pretty confident we'll finish well in advance of the end of the year. So, and that'll put you ahead of your promised time of delivery to the government? Exactly right. So we'll finish uh, with some time to spare. So this is a good news story up here in terms of, uh, you know, all the stimulus projects in the world. Some are moving fast and some are not. This is a, a really high-performing project in that, you know, we're ahead of schedule and it looks like we may be ahead of budget. And we're looking at, you know, ways to ensure that we serve as many of these community anchor institutions as possible along the way um, as we free up budget savings. Huh. That, that would definitely be a good front-page story because there's been a lot of sniping on the national level of, 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 of sniping against these projects, and I think it's important that um, you know there be these kinds of success stories that prove that hey, you know, this was not a bad idea. This whole broadband stimulus thing. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean. Uh, I think what you'll find is that the across the constellation of broadband stimulus projects, these are by and large very good projects. Um, the federal government did a lot of due diligence on both uh, both the the markets and the needs in the localities where these projects were being built, and also on the organizations building them. Mm -hmm. um, but in our project in particular, the private investors that put up the matching funds we're really concerned with running the project responsibly. And when I say responsibly, I mean from a federal grant compliance standpoint, uh, from a budgeting standpoint, from a schedule standpoint, from a civic engagement and stakeholder engagement standpoint, because the risks involved in doing a project like this with public money are really amplified uh, from the normal risks that you have in a project, that you simply have budget and schedule risk. Um, so they invested heavily on the front end of this project to make sure it was responsibly managed, and I think that's really paid dividends in the end as we've kind of been able to accelerate things. Um, and that, at the end of the day, I'd like to think that that saves some money, but the key thing was to deploy management resources early in the process uh, to make sure that things got off to a good start. And this brings up a question I've been uh, floating around in the back of my brain, which is um, project management. Now, there is, in the world of you know, big projects, a, a whole philosophy around project management, and there are, you know, software applications. I guess people even get degrees in project management. Does this project follow conventional project management? Uh, I don't know what the, even what the, what the exact phrase would be, but is this sort of a typical project that you can use typical um, project management best practices, if you will, or did you guys have to rewrite the book a little bit because you've got political issues, you've got technology issues, uh, you've got community relations. I mean, you just have a whole myriad of things that don't necessarily come together in your typical private sector project or government project. Yeah, that well, that's a great question. So when when the main fiber company uh, you know, started this project, they hired Tilson Technology Management to provide outsourced project and pro 
program management um, support, you know, in essentially a staff augmentation basis to make sure that, um, you know, a company which is going to be scaled for current operations, you know, long-term the main fiber company is going to be, you know, maintaining and leasing its network, not spending $32 million every year in CapEx. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made a heavy investment in sort of project and program management on the front end. And as you can imagine, the physicality of this network installation looks a lot like a construction project. Um, right. There's trucks that roll. You have to order materials. Those materials have to be there on time. Uh, you have to have the right approvals and permits completed uh, to get to the starting line. But unlike a lot of construction projects, the sort of compliance piece of this project, and particularly in the telecom world, we don't often see lots of environmental regulation, for example, mm-hmm. on existing pole lines. Because federal dollars were being spent, um, the sort of compliance regime and the permitting regime was was more robust uh, than you might expect in a project of similar size in the private sector. So that required a little bit of a book rewrite on, you know, how do we manage that responsibly without slowing down the guys in the field? Um, and at the end of the day, we took a compliance-first approach, meaning that we wanted to run this project in a way that was compliant with the various uh, federal and state laws around the stimulus, around the environment, around telecom regulation, around grant administration, and that taking a sort of slow, as steady, and steady, as fast approach around getting those sort of foundational things squared away meant that we'd be able to move quickly in the field once we got the guys to the starting line. When we hired uh, next-gen telecom services, we basically told them, we said, look, we have a lot of stuff to do to get you guys to the starting line, and we're going to manage that responsibly, and we're going to get it all done, but you can't start until we've got it done right. And uh, what that meant, like the case for many construction companies, the the schedule compresses for the last guy in line, the constructor. Um, As all the permitting stuff happens, if the deadline at the end doesn't move, you can imagine that their schedule just becomes more and more compressed. So uh, we were really lucky to have chosen a high-performing vendor um, who was able to sort of manage that schedule compression well. Um, And our goal as a project management team was to get sections compliant, permitted, uh, you know, materials ordered, and everything in line at the right time and in the same place that they could proceed with construction. So... Getting back to your question, it, it did require sort of a traditional project management discipline around a technology construction project, but it required a whole other level of activity around ensuring that we were being sort of compliant with the federal and state requirements that were unique to the project. Lots of Gantt charts went in that one, huh? What's that? Lots of lots of lots of charting and and all that kind of craziness went in. Yeah, the... exactly right. The schedule the schedule's a moving target. Uh, but uh, the good news is, is when we revise the schedule, we try and make it shorter, not not flip it to the right. Mm-hmm. Was there an extensive um, formal needs analysis process that went on prior to um, applying for the grants, and and has there been one done since the grant has been awarded? So the so the grant application process happened pretty fast. Uh, the the federal government released its. Uh, you know, re- requests for, you know, applications. Um, and the stakeholder group in Maine that was meeting um, to respond to that request, you know, essentially had a, a very limited amount of time to do it. And at the end of the day, found that having multiple organizations responding was really not the way to go. Uh, GWI wound up really taking it and running with it under a really compressed timeline. Uh, the good news is, is that they engaged some very good consultants along the way and 
and they were pretty knowledgeable about what the cost structure of a project like this would be, so that when they did when they did apply for it, although uh, you know certain small things have changed about the project as it's evolved, you know at a high level they really got it right. They got it right in the in the sort of regulatory structure and and uh, sort of carrier neutral attitude about the project. This idea that it would be transferred to a you know a neutral third party that wouldn't represent any specific carrier. Uh, they really got it right around the budget. Um, you know, as it turns out, uh, you know, we've been able to be really aggressive with our procurements, um, you know, run, you know, large full and open competition bids and, and wring some cost out of it. Uh, but it's turned out that the budget that they put together in a very short period of time has been sufficient. Uh, I will say that since the grant was awarded and on an ongoing basis, uh, you know, we're really doing, you know, detailed analysis and, and review on you know virtually every assumption in a real time basis, um, sometimes going back to the assumptions we thought were okay and looking at at them again, so that as we get closer and closer to network wide go live, we've got the right technology, uh, we've got the right budget, we've got the right schedule, we've got the right people involved to make this thing uh, useful. And, and as you know, the the world has changed uh, since 2009 when this grant was applied for. The technology has evolved. Uh, the stakeholders' needs have changed. Uh, the political realities around public spending have changed. Um, so all of those things, you know, require us to, you know, stay nimble and on our toes and, and keep the project a, a living, breathing animal versus, you know, a static vision that hasn't evolved uh, with a changing world. Do you have a Department of Political Relations? <laughs> I, I, I say I say this somewhat jokingly, but in reality, uh, with all the local jurisdictions and then with the state you know, wide issues, and then you have the legislature, and you have all these various random people taking pot shots nationally. Um, do you actually, I mean, you know, seriously, do you have a public uh, or a political affairs person? To yeah, so so we've got several people helping us uh, with that. Um, yeah, at Tilson, we have a full-time communications person by the name of Emma Leishness, and she really is the sort of quarterback of our communications efforts. Uh but she also uh you know engages uh PR firms. We've we've worked with a, a guy by the name of Tom Genenda who runs a, a firm called Elevate uh here in Maine, uh working on national PR issues and and uh I've taken a, a role in that as well. Uh our lead investor uh, and CEO of the company, Dwight Allison, uh is a is a frequent road tripper around the state meeting with groups of stakeholders uh, and taking interviews, and and I would say we've had a, a full court press on public engagement in PR since the beginning of the project that really hasn't let up. Um, so our our attitude has generally been that offense is our best defense in this regard, and we're out there educating people about the project and the value of the project every day. Um, and that goodwill is in the in the bank. Uh, you know, should anybody um, you know try and obstruct the project, so we found that. In this case, having a good team of PR professionals um, and just having the key members of the project who are not PR people. I'm not a PR person and Dwight's not a PR person. Just get out in front and talk to people about the value of the project, about the importance of broadband, about the network openness and how everyone can participate. Uh, for us, that's really been the best inoculation against trouble. And I think that makes a lot of sense, and there are probably uh, dozens and dozens of other projects that should uh, should follow suit. By the way, are you are you folks going to be at the um, Fiber to the Home Council uh, deal in Orlando? Uh, no, no, we won't oh. be there. Although we will be at the uh, 
at the uh, Department of Commerce uh, BTOP conference in, in Cleveland uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty pretty hip gathering of all of the all the winners as everybody tries to sort out and figure out what the next steps are going to be. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think the NTIA has done a really good job putting projects together um, to share best practices. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the NTIA's job here is not only to make sure that they're regulating these projects and making sure they're compliant, but also to make sure that they're successful. Right. And some of the best places to look for success are in specific projects. There's a lot of really smart, creative people out there doing these projects. So mm-hmm. what they're making sure happens is that there's cross-pollination uh, between them so that a project is doing something really well, you know, becomes known to, you know, other projects who may be struggling in that area. Right, right. So um, <clears throat> slipping on your peer counselor hat, um, what advice do you have for others that are working on, um, statewide projects in particular, whether it's infrastructure or broadband adoption, but based on the lessons that you've learned, how do you manage the statewide beast? Well, the the statewide beast is hard, particularly in, in places where states equal a lot of travel time. Uh, you know, in Maine, from where our offices are in Portland to some of the northernmost reaches of the project, we have six or more hour drive, sometimes an eight-hour drive, uh, to get to certain parts of the project. Um, in some states, in rural states, you can imagine in Nebraska and in Texas and in California, uh, you know, some of the some of the distances are even uh, more daunting. So I think um, one of the one of the sort of key pieces of advice I would have for big state projects is to make sure that uh, you know you get your public outreach and engagement machine open and oriented early, and you engage existing statewide organizations who can be your voice. Uh, to the various communities. In Maine, we did that primarily through the Maine Municipal Association and the state legislature. Um, but, you know, in other states and other communities, I'm sure there's other organizations that are relevant to, to reach those groups. Um, one of the things that we found is by identifying specific stakeholder groups that have statewide organizations that we can engage more successfully with that statewide organization than with an individual institution. An example would be an association of hospitals, uh, or, an, or an association of um, you know public safety professionals. That's a way for projects to reach uh, you know more institutions uh, you know with their limited staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that makes a lot of sense. Now, in order of priority, let's see, we've got uh, a few minutes here. So, in order of priority, what are the three or four things that project teams should focus on? Uh, in, in order to move the project, a broadband project, from concept to launch? So I, I think in, in federally funded projects, uh, one thing that's easily overlooked, and I, I think a lot of projects have learned um, along the way in this particular grant program, is the, is the challenges of the environmental compliance regimes uh, required when you spend federal dollars. And mm-hmm. starting the process early enough and engaging the right expertise and outside consultants early enough to ensure that that piece is lined up and completed responsibly before uh, before trucks are ready to roll so you're not you're not waiting for that to be done so although that's kind of a tactical consideration I might put it at the top of the list uh, the the second and more strategic look would be to engage the right stakeholders in terms of drawing the map um, obviously when you're doing a big project uh, you can you can reach some far-flung places but you can't reach everywhere. There's never enough dollars in the project. So mm-hmm. making sure that you engage with the right stakeholders. Uh, in our case, our early engagement uh, with the university and the input from Jeff Letourneau 
was absolutely critical to make sure that the map was drawn right uh, in the first place. Um, I would also add that uh, you know aggressively procuring uh, is really important. Um, we were a private company, but even as a private company, uh, going up to bid for the kind of services we were we were looking for, uh, we were required to to compete um, anything anything using public funds, and uh, we were. Uh, not surprised, but we were pleased to see that, you know, the result of that full and open competition yielded some really good pricing. So, uh, you know, aggressive aggressive competition and procurements is really, uh, you know, to a large project's benefit. Good. Any, any, anything else? Or actually maybe a better, uh, better question uh, to add on to that is, so what are the top, you know, two or three things to do post-launch to keep the project on track? Well, I think um, I think ensuring you have a responsibly run network is really important. So it's one thing to build it, and it's another thing to maintain it in a way that's uh, you know safe and useful to others. So um, one of the things we've heard from our customers as we uh, commission and go live on various parts of the network is they they want to make sure that the network is being uh, you know maintained in a in a safe um, and responsible way, both for the other utilities on the pole lines and for the users of the network. Um, you know, the second is ensuring that there's a really good sustainability model, and a really good sustainability model often means that you've got to aggressively sell uh, the network and make sure that uh, you know there's as many users on it uh, as possible, sharing the operating costs. Uh, and in Maine, we've been very successful in, in carrier signups, and, and recently brought on uh, uh, a full-time director of business development to focus on you know large carrier sales on the three-ring binder and. And uh, that sustainability model, that sort of commitment to ensuring that you're continuing to bring on new customers is really important. So it's both a sustainability physically, making sure that the network is up and running and available to people, but also sustainability financially uh, to make sure that you know, you're continuing to sell capacity on the network and really make the best use of the public funds that were provided. Um, the network's not doing anyone any good unless... Uh, people are interconnected, um, and those that are interconnected won't be well served uh, by the network unless it does well financially and, and can pay its bills. So we seem to be through that uh, through that risk here in Maine, but I think um, you know nationally, as people transition from project work to ongoing operations, you know the focus will pretty quickly be you know shifting towards you know network operations and running a tight network, and and also sales on the network and making sure people are using it. Okay, we got about a minute. Any is there is there any such thing as too much success? Uh, well, sometimes sometimes I wonder when I look at our schedule. The the more time we uh, shave off the schedule, the the more eager people are to to hop on um, and and uh, managing a, a fast moving and successful project also requires uh, expectation management. But mm-hmm. these are what I consider high class problems. So um, I'm I'm happy to have them. Yes, I know. Not too many people will complain about those. Though I will caution in general that um, one of those unexpected problems you can have is that you open the floodgates and too many people jump on. And a number of folks have talked about, you know, the management issues that that creates. Um, and and so you have to almost hold people back, which which sounds like what you guys are doing. So that makes that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Well, for us, it's been all about laying on capacity to deal with that inevitable onslaught, and mm-hmm. we've implemented a, a software system that, that maps every last strand of the fiber and where it goes on the network. Um, we've brought on additional you know, sales and business development folks, and we've brought on additional 
sort of engineering and implementation people to make sure that, you know, as people are clamoring to get on the network, they're not waiting for us. So um, even as our construction team focuses on getting it built on time or ahead of time, uh, we have another separate team that's sort of protected from that day-to-day -day noise, and, and they're really focused on getting people on the network and making sure that it's maintained responsibly. Great. Well, I want to thank you, Josh, for your time today and all the wonderful insights, and I think that our uh, audience has benefited. And by the way, we have done uh, very good at keeping our audience here, even though we had to compete with the president on the on, on LinkedIn, who was doing a uh, town show, uh, town talk show. So it's been great. It's been fun. It's been extremely educational. Again, thank you very much, Josh, and to our audience. Thanks, Craig. It was uh, fun to be here. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.